0: to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich.
1: This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Many books have been written about the world of the Civil War soldier based on what they wrote and said about all that they went through? Tonight, we go beyond their words alone and try to look beneath the skin to understand how these men processed and understood all that they experienced. This is the challenge taken up by Professor Peter S. Carmichael in The War for the Common Soldier, How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies. And he joins us tonight on Civil War talk radio
0: streaming live the leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com.
2: are you ready for a disaster if you are like many people in the world that answer may sadly be no
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu that's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building, office A320, the only person on the floor tonight at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday in December 2018. But I will speak only for myself, not for the absent colleagues in the history department or the philosophy department down the hall or anybody else. And likewise, my guest will speak only for himself, as we always do here on the show. It is December 2018. It's the last show of the Fall semester, it's cold outside by North Carolina standards, it's into the 30s, time for a sweater and a light jacket. Some of the natives are responding as they do, either by putting on boots as if in, in park as like they're going on an Arctic expedition, or wearing shorts and t-shirts as if they they disdain the cold, which no thinking northern person would do. Um, it, it's, it's just interesting to see how people react to it but it's very pleasant to not be hot all the time here uh, in December and gray and rainy the way winter is supposed to be in, in my home state of Michigan uh, I like that uh, and it's the end of the semester so final exams have come and gone uh, we had a bit of snow actually over the weekend, very unusual and normally when snow threatens the university puts up red banners on the website, we are monitoring weather conditions, stand by, prepare for Armageddon, school may be canceled. That didn't happen this week because it's final exam week. And if we miss a day or two in November, you know, we make it up, not a big deal. But if the university had to be closed during exam week, even for a day, it would throw such a wrench into everything. There'd be no way to reschedule those exams before the students went home. People wouldn't graduate on time. Finance, financial aid would get messed up. It would just be a disaster. So the charade that we cannot have classes if there's an inch of snow on the ground was not played out this time. They just went right ahead and pretended it wasn't happening, and we got our exams done. All, all good. Uh in the last few weeks, I got a number of emails from uh, from you listening to the show, which I appreciated uh, pointing out that there was a brief delay in getting the, the previous two shows posted uh, on the website impedimentsofwar.org, or on the Facebook page, which in turn, I guess, gets them out into the, uh, into the podcasting world, into iTunes, and all the other places where you download your podcasts. So people were saying, what's happened? There's no new show. The last two shows didn't go up. Uh, the answer turns out that uh, Mark Gaffney, who you've heard me mention uh, every time, hopefully, who does yeoman work in putting those shows online, putting them up on impediments of war, also has a real life uh, to live. He has a day job and, uh, occasionally those things take priority over getting the shows put up. So when there was a brief delay, it was gratifying to see how many people were concerned about it. And I'm happy to report it was nothing. And uh, it's a reminder how much we all depend on Mark's efforts. He's been doing this for most of the show's existence, which is now in its 15th season. And He and I have still never actually met in person. It's something you could only have in the Internet age, I suppose. Well, I guess you could have correspondence with paper. They probably did that in the Civil War. Uh, But it's it's interesting that we've never actually met, but we have worked together to make this happen. And I can safely say Civil War Talk Radio could not go forward as it has without his efforts. I occasionally share the bounty of books that come in here sent by uh, publishers or purchase through the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund and, and share those with Mark as a small token of appreciation for all he does but he's not in it for the money uh, uh, any more than I am. He, he's doing this to help us all out and we all owe him a lot of thanks. Moving forward uh, we will be taking a break after tonight. There will be no live shows for the next Uh, Several weeks as we enter the winter break here at East Carolina University, we will come back in January 2019 to start the spring semester, delightfully called the spring semester starting in January, optimistic. Uh, Our first show coming back next year in 2019 will be on January 9th. Will Green, uh, A. Wilson Green, will be talking about his new book, A Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1. This might be called A Series of Giants because it's a big book, and this will take us from the crossing of the James to the crater. On the 16th, Dr. Alexander B. Rossino will talk about his novel of the Antietam Campaign, Six Days in September. It's unusual to have historical fiction. Uh, Dr. Rossino is a card-carrying historian and has chosen a different way to write about past, and I'm looking forward to reading the book and talking with him. On the 23rd, Janet Croon will be here to discuss The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860 to 1865. That book has gotten a lot of press, a lot of discussion, and that also should be an interesting conversation. And then a uh, beautifully produced book, uh, Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. It's co-written by Anna Holloway and Jonathan White. and uh, Anna Holloway will be with us for that. So that's what we've got coming up in January 2019. Please join us for that. The spring schedule is almost set all the way through. There are so many interesting things coming out. Uh, seemed every week there's some new important book being published i'll just give you a quick hint of what's coming up in february aaron sheehan dean has an important new book that'll be out by then dan weinberg will be with us uh, around lincoln's birthday our, our old friend from the abraham lincoln bookshop in chicago and then caroline janey and andrew delbanco will be our guests for the last two weeks in february uh, people you've heard of, people who've been on the show before, or people whose books are being talked about everywhere, it's, it's a, an exciting time to be involved in Civil War scholarship. And it's exciting tonight to have uh, Peter S. Carmichael, the Robert C. Fleur Professor of Civil War Studies and Director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College as our guest. And because I always do this, I have to remind you, this year's Civil War Institute or the 2019 one is June 14 to 19. Make your plans now. Contact Gettysburg College. Go to www.gettysburg.edu/slash CWI. Find out how to get your seat reserved for the Institute. It is an experience anyone listening to the show will enjoy. I guarantee that without reservation. And uh, having said that, I know our guest tonight will confirm that. Uh, Pete, it is good to have you back on the show. Are, are you able to hear me? Are you there?
3: I'm here. Yes, I can hear you. Thank you so much for those uh, kind words about the Institute. Yes, I, I fully endorse your compliment it, about it. It is a, it is a unique experience um, for our attendees as well as for our, our speakers. there really is. There's nothing quite like it. Uh, and so, yes, I'm hoping we'll have an opportunity at some point to be able to talk about it a little bit.
1: It it is a great thing. Um, we will have uh, in March um, uh, uh, Ashley Blusky, uh, who works with you on the uh, uh, on the the institute, will be our guest talking about her own historical work. But it'll be yet another chance to put in a a, a plug for the institute. Uh, but it it it's it how many days? Three, four, five days? It goes by.
0: So, we actually have some
3: options, yeah. It begins on a Friday, and there's one option that runs through the weekend, which will, of course, include all the lectures as well as a Saturday evening tour on the Gettysburg battlefield. Uh, the vast majority of our attendees uh, stay through Tuesday, and on that Monday and Tuesday, we also have additional tours. On Monday, those tours, uh, Go beyond Gettysburg and a variety of places um, from the Shenandoah Valley to central Virginia. Uh, this year, we have a group that is going to the Civil War Museum in Harrisburg uh, mm-hmm. to meet with Wayne Motts. Uh, and then on Tuesday, we have battlefield tours centered uh, here at, at Gettysburg. So most folks stay from Friday all the way through Tuesday.
1: And, uh, and it, but there is an option.
3: There's an option. So I'm going to do
1: just the weekend if I like. Those those tours are led by people that again everybody listening to the show has already read their books. Uh, I went on, you know, Kent Masterson Brown's tour of the Gettysburg Campaign last June, uh, and, and my busman's holiday there, and it's just fascinating. Uh, Will, Will Green, yeah, Will Green, who's
3: your next uh, next guest. He mm-hmm. frequently uh, led tours for us. Uh, Scott Hartwig, uh, the former historian at Gettysburg National Park. Chris Gwynn, who is the current. I call him the historian. That's not his. Official government position. He is the chief of interpretation. Uh, He gives tours for us. Carol Reardon gives tours tours for us. I mean, we have a long list, and I think that's an important thing to say about the institute that it does not simply cater to academics. In fact, we bring a lot of museum professionals and park service people. Uh, We are on the process right now of putting a panel together of the Gettysburg battlefield guides, and I'm also working on a panel for Civil War reenactors. I i always wanted this to be the rallying point for so the various uh, different groups um, uh, of cohorts of people who have an interest in the Civil War and, and give them a, a place here at the conference. And I think it's it's great for the field. I think it's great for the professionals. Uh, and I think it's especially exciting for the attendees because they get to then see all the different dimensions of what people are doing in Civil War history.
1: And, and it's... It- it's exactly you know what it does. It's not an academic conference by any stretch of the no, imagination. No, it is a conference no. with people with academic interests, with other interests, and it's for an audience of people who are the people listening tonight, basically, the people yeah, listening to right. Civil War talk radio who, who are well-read and curious and want to know more yeah. and fascinated. Right. Um, so it it's just a great and, thing. And
3: even those who maybe have, they feel like they have more passion than knowledge. This is still a good place to go. And, you know, what many people see of the conference is C-SPAN. And C-SPAN has been mm-hmm. very good to the Civil War Institute. They film all of our programs Friday through Sunday. They often do it live. But what people don't see from their television is they don't see the dine-ins. And the dine-ins are small group gatherings at at dinner, where the attendees, uh, if they sign up soon enough, <laughs> and they get <laughs> to pick the speaker they want to have dinner with, and there's usually a document or some topic that is discussed in a very conversational way. <laughs> this isn't going back to college. We're not putting anyone on the spot here. It's just a no. chance to just meet some other folks, get to have some personal time with one of the historians. So, you know, that's a big part of what we do. I feel very strongly about that. I. I was very fortunate to build upon Gabor Board's legacy, and uh, one of the things that I did was I wanted to make sure that our attendees had that opportunity to have, you know, some special time with the speakers and with their fellow attendees. I didn't want them to just simply be in a massive classroom, and uh, we have that big classroom that holds about three hundred people, uh, but we do other ways that really I think help people feel engaged. And I want to stress, no matter. What your background is, no matter what your interest is, you'll find something at Cwi, and you'll find that the people are really generous and very friendly. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's a good thing. And Jerry, I'm thrilled you came last year. We need to get you speaking. In fact, we will be planning 2020. Look, uh, Ashley and I will be planning that very mm-hmm. shortly, and uh, so we're hoping to get you up on the platform there. We would really like. I'd, that. I'd be happy to. I'm looking year.
1: forward to uh, the of a free pass out of you to go this year and, and yeah, do as we did last yeah, year, talk to people, uh, recorded yeah. several shows that listeners, yeah. you heard uh, yeah, some yeah, of the shows we recorded right. this past summer. Yeah. But it, I can't stress enough the the interaction away from the, the classroom you know, we have all the meals in the dining hall, and there's a competition with the lacrosse camps and soccer camps, all the, the high school and college students who are in there also trying to get meals at the same time. But it, you can tell by pretty much by the age uh, which table has Civil War Institute people. <laughs> you and side. you sit there, and you talk with people from California and Ohio and Florida uh, who are just there because they're interested, and then you also talk... You know, and and the faculty, the, the the speakers are also sitting at these tables. Sometimes they're sitting with one another and talking shop, but they'll all f- often be out there just chatting right. with the attendees, and and, 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 and,
3: and, and and that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're they're supposed yeah. to disperse. <laughs> they're not yes, supposed to cling to each other, and so that's often a challenge that that, that I have. But most of the time, the faculty uh, they are there, there uh, again, considerate and thoughtful. That you know what. They can see their buddies at an academic conference. This is the time to mingle and to get to know other people. And the good news is this year, because we're doing it the second week of June, we will not be competing for table space at uh-huh. the dining hall with the lacrosse camps and those other uh, people. I, I will say, though, that we do have a, a pretty sizable contingent of high school students. They are scholarship recipients. Mm-hmm. We had 80 applicants last year, 80. And we could wow. only uh, accept, I believe, 12 last year. We're trying to bump that up to 20. And I'm sure, Jerry, you saw that many of these kids are utterly fearless in that big classroom, you know. Almost oh, asking questions? People. Yes, ask they were great the time, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I'd have been terrified uh, doing that in front of all those people, and then on top of it, throw C-SPAN, and, uh, and yeah, and they're great questions, they're thoughtful. So, you know, for those who want to, um, who think that this younger generation doesn't have any real com, any passion for the past, um, uh, come to the Civil War Institute. You'll not only see these high school kids, you'll see students who are part of the Pohanka summer internship program and And these are students from gettysburg college we place 30 of them at national parks from andersonville all the way up to boston and many of those kids they take a break from their jobs and they come to the conference as well so it's it's a real great mix of people and uh, you'll see a youthful presence i wish it was larger but you'll see Mm -hmm. a presence there
1: well it is just a great experience we're going to take a short break now and come back uh I really invited you here to talk about your book, so we're going to talk about that in just a moment. We'll take a quick break, uh, come back with Peter S. Carmichael, author of The War for the Common Soldier How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life.
0: All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the River Oceanus creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Peter S. Carmichael, author of The War for the Common Soldier, How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies. This is a long-awaited book that looks at uh, the, the many aspects of the experience of Civil War soldiers. Uh, but Pete, let me jump right in at the deep end. Uh, in the introduction, you point out that there's no one representative person who, who speaks for all Civil War soldiers. In fact, you, you actually say there was no common soldier. So how can we have a book called The War for the Common Soldier?
3: <laughs> well, I'll say first that the title was not mine. Uh, the title was I wondered given to me about because, that. <laughs> yeah, the book is uh, part of the Littlefield series, published by the okay. University of North Carolina. And the Littlefield mm-hmm. series is dedicated to offering broad uh, synthesis treatments of key aspects of the American Civil War era. I obviously was asked to do the, the war for the common soldier, or the one on the common soldier. So there was... A fair amount of tension between the editors and myself, Uh, not really so much about the title, about the nature of the book, because of my Mm -hmm. insistence uh, that the search for the common soldier, the the idea that you could find a representative man or men, I thought that that uh, was leading us astray and us really trying to understand all of the dimensions of the common soldier. And I will then add quickly to this. So what I had seen in the literature, uh, a literature that's very rich, a literature that I certainly built upon, a literature that many of your uh, listeners are familiar with, headed by Joe Glattar, Earl Hess, James McPherson, and many others. And their uh, search for typicality, especially when it comes to James McPherson, is very um, explanation for his methodology, reveals mm-hmm. that you can't find typicality because McPherson's case and his book, For Cause and Comrade, he excluded a wide swath of men who simply were either not literate or who were semi-literate. These are the poor, and uh, these are the men whose, we don't have great access to their letters. So when you simply rely upon the men who wrote so freely and who wrote so beautifully, and of course, we're all taken by their words as we should be, and in no way am I trying to diminish what those men wrote as to why they fought. Nor am I trying to diminish what these other scholars have done. I'm simply saying that by their own definition, they fail to acknowledge that their very sample is not representative. Thus, they don't truly have that common soldier. You put that aside and I think you open up the world of the common soldier and then you, you keep yourself from trying to stereotype soldiers so that you can find that representative man.
1: So if we go back to the start of this historiography with Bell Wiley, life of Johnny Reb or life of Billy Yank, I mean, there's, that's a single person. Johnny Reb is one guy uh, who stands for all of them, one, one stereotype. And then we get McPherson looking at hundreds, even thousands. And you're taking it a step further and saying, no, they're all different.
3: Absolutely, but I, I would say that it, that can lead to an unnecessary fragmentation, right? If you just simply yeah. conclude, look, they're all so incredibly diverse that you, can, you can't draw any meaningful generalizations, and that's not very useful. Uh, so you know, I'm trying to somewhere go into the middle, and I would suggest that what my book does, it, it really works from the outside in, and, and this is what I mean by that. I want to understand the world or worlds that these men inhabited, I want to understand the cultural world. I want to understand the world of military discipline and coercion. I want to understand the physical world, what Bill Wiley was so great at. I want to understand the world of ideology. I want to understand how those worlds were fluid. I want to understand how they were obviously always changing. And I want to understand how men interacted with those words rather than than what I think most of the historiography has done. It's taken the letters of these soldiers, extracted perceptions, extracted ideas, and then those ideas, they are now outside of that rich context that I just mentioned. And that, I think, is, again, a significant problem in the historiography. We don't get the flow of ideas, or I should say we don't understand the ideas within the flow of events over an extended period of time.
1: So when and, you look at and an I individual that's soldier... Not, and that's, that's
3: really key to what I do. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes, sir.
1: Right. Well, well, just so, so I'm saying you don't... As opposed to taking a snippet, a quote, or even a whole letter from a soldier, you in each chapter take you know, two, three, or four soldiers... And look and, and devote substantial space to them, to to their letters in the context of their entire military careers, and that's that, that's different. Absolutely.
3: It, it, I think it is to some degree. It's different. I think that my, again, editors, and we can talk freely about this, they they were very frustrated with this approach. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they thought that my selection of these men were entirely random, and I would say not entirely random. They they do reflect both sides. They do reflect mm-hmm. different class backgrounds. I think it does capture all that. But what I would say, Jerry, is that <clears throat> these biographies, they are these deep contextual stories. They're incredibly poignant but they do more than just focus on an individual. It's not microbiography. It is a way to, in fact, bring in other voices. So the idea that it's just a story of one man, once, as you just discovered, once you start to read about a soldier like John Futch, F U T T H, John Futch, who was illiterate, John Futch, whose brother was mortally wounded at Gettysburg, his brother's name was Charles, and died in his arms, John Futch ultimately had decided to desert the Army in Northern Virginia. He was captured and executed for that crime. Uh, that storyline has a number of pinholes in it where you can see beyond John Futch, and you can see these, again, broader currents that men were uh, affected by, shaped by, and at the same time, they also shaped and affected those broader currents. So I wanted to be history in action. I wanted to, I wanted to return the spontaneity of the soldier experience, and above all else, I wanted to get the reader to stand in the shoes of the soldier and to take in the world, to perceive it just as that man did.
1: So the the chapters have different headings, but in some ways things blend together. Like Fudge, for example, you write about as an example of someone who is is caught deserting, ultimately executed. But the theme of desertion runs through other chapters in the sense that you write about how soldiers dealt with the idea of of, of military discipline, uh, being citizen soldiers, men of free will, yet not of free will any longer. They're in the army, but okay. they could exercise their free will. They could leave any time, and if they're willing to take the risk, as Sotry ultimately does. Uh, I, I thought that was a very interesting thread. Uh, of right. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jerry, I think you've hit
3: on something that again was a source of frustration with the editors, and that's an, you know I can name names here. I mean, these are people who I, I absolutely respect, and I and I respected the fact that they. They pushed back on my ideas, and my two editors were Gary Gallagher and Michael Parrish. And the mm-hmm. point that you just made, Jerry, is one that troubled them. They thought that um, that I had diminished uh, the soldiers' ideological beliefs as a source of motivation and that I had put too much emphasis on coercion, that I had put too much emphasis on punishment, that there were... And a chapter that is devoted to crime and punishment focuses a number of executions. And they said to me, Mm -hmm. Pete, this was the exception, not the rule. And as I write in the introduction and write in that chapter, that if you want to understand how the vast majority of soldiers, how they recognize the authority within the army, you have to know the boundaries of that authority. You have to understand when some men tested and pushed, and simply they went too far. So the focus on the men who were executed in both armies, again, it's not just a a story that focuses just on them. It opens up, I think, a way for us to fully appreciate, and this is a key part to this book, is the constraints. Of the world that these men inhabited, and I think for too long, because of our focus on ideology, we have seen Civil War soldiers as taking in the world, understanding that world, and then acting upon those beliefs in a very clear and straightforward way. It's that social history desire from the 1960s to want to give power to the people, to give them agency. And I think that we've gone too far with that in a number of fields, but especially with Civil War soldiers. And we have lost that what these men felt, and it was always present. They didn't have to write about it. It's the presence of violence and coercion from the Army. And so what I said to my editors, I said, listen. I said, I think these executions had a powerful impact on all the armies, and here's my parallel. And your listeners can can determine whether it's a good one or not. How many times did a slave child have to see their mom or their father whipped to know what this institution was about? I'd say probably once. How many times did these soldiers have to see a man executed or punished or humiliated to recognize
1: the limits, the limits of dissent? The I mean, it's really interesting hearing you talk about this, and and especially the struggles with uh, with your editors, because right. this book yeah. is not uh, it, it's not Bell Wiley uh, uh, Encore. It's it's not uh, James Robertson, you uh, know, uh, Soldiers Blue and Gray. It, it's it's right. not even the works of the the nineteen eighties. I'm thinking Gerald Linderman or uh, Reed Mitchell. These people writing about the soldiers' uh, outlooks—it's—it's very different. Um, And
3: well, Jay, let me just ask you, if you don't mind, yeah, you think it's a little bit of all this, and and, and I'll even press you a little bit here. I mean, Jerry, I, I would say it's a little bit of your book. It's a little bit for all for the regiment. I mean, I take from that book. I draw from that book. I And so I, I see pieces of all those books informing what I do. I think I do something very different in the end, but I'm deeply influenced by all those, including your book, All for the Regiment.
1: Well, th- there was one point where you, I'm trying to look at my notes. Um, in in the, uh, the chapter on Courage and, and Cowardice, you at one point suggest that there is... Um, th- 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 Historiographical contest between those who argue that uh, soldiers are motivated by their ideology, that they they believe in their causes, or more like World War II platoon buddies, they're motivated by their comrades, uh, you know, for causes and comrades, as as James McPherson famously writes. And my thought when I read that was, I'm not sure that sounds like a false binary to me. I'm not sure many historians really take only one side or the other. And in all for the regiment, I very much thought it was both sides.
3: Uh, Yeah. I I don't don't know. That that might
1: be a straw man you don't need to knock down because you you make a great case. Yeah, that
3: could be, although I think certainly McPherson's engagement with Linderman, McPherson very much did frame it as a binary. I think that he... Yeah. I think he caught the excesses of Gerald Enderman's Battle Courage, which, again, is a book that has great value. Look, I, yes. Dr. Gallagher, when I was a graduate student, he made it clear to all of, his, all of his students. He said, look, you don't get into a seminar and just rip a book apart. He you, you get into a seminar and you read to understand the nature of the argument. And then you try to understand its contributions. And certainly every book has its limitations. But there's nothing gained by simply just demolishing a book. And so with, you know, Gerald Linderman's book, which I think still has staying power, you know, I think that he went too far in suggesting that Civil War soldiers were disillusioned. But what he did do, and he did it brilliantly, is he certainly showed how, over time, a chasm developed between soldiers and those on the home front. And that uh, it was, I think, an important contribution that I don't believe McPherson fully uh fully embraces, or maybe even, yes, or fully appreciates. Uh, at the same time, I think that, you know, McPherson reminds us that ideas did have power, and they, they <laughs> had sustaining power for these men, and I never, ever dim- diminish that. But, again, my, what I stress, what I don't think anyone else has, is we need to remind ourselves that ideological determinism, it keeps us from understanding how soldiers thought in situational terms are what I call pragmatism. The men didn't use that word. I use it. And I think they were highly pragmatic in thought as well as in action. And that is, again, I think one of the key contributions of what I bring to the table.
1: Well, I I see where you're going with that, that that where there was a a tendency to ignore uh, ideology, I and mean, You go back to Bernard Balin bringing this into American history in the 1960s that we should take historian, historical actors' ideas seriously. They're not all just economically determined. Uh, and then it, what you're saying here, though, is is in any one given circumstance, at any one day when you're deciding do I desert today or do I go up the hill with my colleagues or I go up the hill, but what or, or when i write home about the experience of doing these things ideology is a factor but so is the experience itself so is and and what you write today may not be what you write next week that this is very malleable in this book they're, they're, yeah. everybody's evolving all the time
3: yes, sir. i mean i think that's the key word is malleable right and the malleability of ideas i think one of many examples is how the vast number of northern soldiers came to accept emancipation as a military necessity. And they were able to, uh, in some way, uh, come to terms with their own racism. I'm not suggesting they suddenly became liberated. I'm not suggesting that it's Yankee Saints and southern sinners. But what I am saying is that here we see an acceptance of emancipation because emancipation, Union soldiers recognized, most did, I should say, That it was going to be the tool that would bring this war to a successful conclusion, and it would get them home. And that's why many of them, and there's a little debate as to how many northern Democrats voted for Lincoln in the fall of 1864, but those who did, they're pragmatists. Did they suddenly become Republicans? Absolutely not. Jonathan White I think makes that abundantly clear. It,
1: it makes that very clear. And I'm just that's saying right. I uh, think Christopher Teters' argument
3: a little bit, but, yeah. but that's an important point that he makes. They're pragmatists.
1: It, it, last week on the show, Christopher Teeters talked about his new book about Western uh, officers in the West and how you know, they were practical liberators. They they didn't become uh, – they they were interested in saving themselves, and they were happy to have emancipation if that would work. Um, we're going to take another short break and you come see, back. But you see this uh, – as quickly as say, you
3: see pragmatism, yep. though, even in ideas about manliness and masculinity. That was one of oh. the things
1: that here where I build upon your book. It, absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take a a quick break because that's our big topic and come back and talk more. Our guest tonight, Peter Carmichael, is the author of The War for the Common Soldier How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio. k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u-dot-e-d-u Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Pete Carmichael, author of The War for the Common Soldier How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies. This is a very rich book, listeners, and we are not going to talk about everything that's in it tonight by a long shot. Uh, If you're at all curious, you definitely want to get a copy of this and read it. If you've stumbled on the podcast in just learning about the Civil War and don't know which came first, Chancellorsville or Gettysburg, this may not be the first book you want to read in that case but if you've been with the topic for any length of time if you've read bell Hiley or any of these other people we've mentioned you definitely need to engage this book for yourself um, pete let me ask you a, a question of all the stories that you wrote about the, the different people you selected right right do you have a favorite?
3: Yeah, it, it's certainly the John John Futch is the is my favorite. Um, okay, I knew about the largest execution in Lee's Army, ten men, in September of eighteen sixty-three, after Gettysburg, of course, and sure. uh, only newspaper accounts. Uh, and of course, the men weren't identified. And you've got a very uh, slanted one might even say it almost came across as a um, statement of propaganda by Confederate papers, demonizing and criminalizing these men. I then found a, a small pamphlet entitled Tragedy at Montpelier in that there were letters quoted. They were quoted from John Futch, one of the men who was executed, to find that Futch was then illiterate. <laughs> he, had, he had spoken his letters to comrades, and many of them were barely literate themselves. Uh, the story was just so incredibly powerful and so rich. And, Jerry, something that we just talked about, I was so... Um, <sighs> So shocked, surprised to see the emotional openness that John Futch spoke his letters. He's speaking to a comrade, but he is opening up, talking about his feelings for his wife, about the loss of his brother, about his desire to go home. He pulls back the curtains on combat. Uh, his letter, and there's another soldier, Wright Vincent, who is also a the military. Vincent, pick. right. Uh, these yeah. Men, uh, yeah, he's a fascinating soldier as well. I, I love their letters because I see their letters. As the first anti-war literature that I think was ever produced in this country, and it's coming from these men, ironically, their lack of formal education uh, is what actually assisted them in speaking about the war in a very honest and a very graphic uh, way because they were beholden uh, to the writing styles, and certainly grammatical structures, that for most soldiers, when they took in these horrendous events that they had seen and, and that they had participated in, to some degree, those events, they're cleansed through the process of writing, but not for these guys, not for Futch and for Wright-Vincent. So uh, I really enjoyed working on those two men a great deal.
1: The the way they wrote their letters, the way all soldiers wrote their letters, as you say, were were Defined by uh, you know paradigms by by models of of how you're supposed to communicate in writing, I, I will say one of my favorites was the uh, in Indiana officer David Beam, David who. Beam, yeah. uh, he, you know, he totally understands what's expected of a husband and wife, uh, right. of, of the patriotism they're supposed to show, the right. mutual support they're right. supposed to show, and right. he's writing all these things about the cause and how much, and how much he loves his wife, and she won't play. She just, well, she, she just won't play. She just says, no, I want yeah. you to come home. I, I, I don't want yeah, any part of this. And part of like, this, oh, no. but I love you. No, just come home. It, it, right. it cracked right. me up. So,
3: you know, yeah, it is. Um, so I started looking at David Beam's letters when I was in high school. I was, uh, so in the 1980s, uh-huh. I uh, looked at his letters at the Indian Historical Society. And so I've come, I've got, you know, got to know him over the years. And, you know, what's striking again about the Beam letter's is it impressed upon me the absolute importance of understanding the relationship of a soldier with his wife and his uh-huh. household and it could take many different shapes and forms Mahala was David beam's wife she certainly didn't any idea or any desire to forge their marriage into a partnership of war uh, and in fact his letters after Antietam after his unit attack the sunken lane. Those letters are very revealing. Once again, a surprise to me. Revealing in that combat, uh, the noise was still swirling in his head. And he eventually, Beam had to remove himself from command and check himself into a private home at Harpers Ferry. And from there, again, he's very candid. He's very open. He's not worried about how she might judge him or others. He was willing to admit that his hand was shaking, that he couldn't write. Uh, that all he could do was basically stare out the window and think about the war. And again, he got no response from her. Now, without that dynamic as part of this book, and that detail is critical, because it eventually pushed David Beam, as it did with many other soldiers, to look to their comrades and to find in their comrades the the understanding and the sympathy that they so desired and often did not get uh, from the people at home. David Beam, I'll end with Beam here, David Beam's letter from Cemetery Hill at Gettysburg was telling he lost two men on the July 2nd attack to take back Cemetery Hill, and those two men, he reported to his wife, gave them their names, and he said, they were buried on the field by their friends, and he underlined, by their friends. So that sense of estrangement, again, I think Linderman goes too far. But certainly, David Bean felt that. Yeah, he's an interesting person. Very interesting person. Uh, Charles Bowen, I don't know if you've encountered the Bowen yep. letters. Have you ever seen the Bowen letters before? They, are, they, I, they, they sound out. familiar. They've been quoted before. Yeah, they're not as widely used as, they, as I think they should be. It's, it's <clears> titled <throat> Dear Friends at Home. Dear Friends at Home. It is one of my favorite books, if not my favorite collection of published letters. It was published by Butternut and Blue, which is a fine press. Mm-hmm. But obviously they don't get a lot of play out there in the uh, commercial world. And if anyone, uh, it is the best collection of letters that published again that I encountered throughout my research. I, uh, he's a fascinating man. He's from Utica, New York. He was a laborer. And he wrote about the war in ways that he, he said to his wife that he would open himself up. And he would describe the war. He, he wrote about it not as how people wanted to imagine it,
1: mm-hmm. but as it
3: really was. And so they're, uh, they're incredibly detailed. They're incredibly powerful. They're evocative. They're emotional. And the guy sees everything. My God, he, he's seven days campaign. He's at Antietam. He's at Fredericksburg. At Fredericksburg, he survives the attack against Marie's Heights to take shelter behind a corpse of a Union soldier the corpse of that Union soldier had the top of its head shaved off by a shell. He said that the eyes of that dead man were staring at him. He said he couldn't take it and he had to push the man at great risk. Right, He had to push the body on the other side. He didn't want to look at it. And then he ventured into town. He joined the looting in Fredericksburg. He got drunk and he wrote to his wife all about it. This is the same man in 1861 who enlisted and saw himself as the Bold soldier boy, and there in a nutshell. I won't talk any more about Bowen, but I'll just say this about him: Do you see that if we only had Bowen's letters from Fredericksburg, uh, this is just such a limited view of how he was transforming and changing throughout the war. We have to have, and that's why I picked the soldiers that I did. I had long lines well, of their letters and had sufficient detail. There's not much of a methodology to my book, as you can tell, and I'm sure that's going to upset some folks. Someone asked me that in a recent talk, what's your methodology? And I said, I had none. I picked soldiers. I wanted to make sure I got enough poor soldiers. I wanted to make sure I got Union soldiers. I wanted to make sure I got Confederate soldiers. I mean, I think it's pretty if you wanted to use the word representative, yeah. I think I've I taught people from different places throughout the north and the south and I think I I think I touched those bases. But at the end of the day, I wanted the richest letters I could possibly get my hands on, and I used other sources. I relied heavily on the National Archives and mm-hmm. court martial records. I, that was a that was a staple in this book. A staple.
1: Well, there there's so much that each of these soldier authors talks about in the letters home. Uh, you know, your chapter on religion and providentialism is absolutely fascinating and and showing how soldiers reconciled this. I especially like the. Uh, the one place where you do actually find a strong difference between northern and southern soldiers in terms of their, their use of, of irony and humor and the how yeah, that is right. antithetical to the southern mind. Going, it made me think of Kenneth Greenberg, uh, right. his book right, Honor and right. Slavery, how you, mm-hmm. you can't joke with a, a southern uh, grandee. I mean, it just humor is not in their – it, it's you, you not in the joke. world.
3: They, they, you can joke with them, they just can't be the right. part of the joke, right? But they can't be the part so of right. that, that That is the chapter that it certainly got my <laughs> got my editors uh, sort of in a tizzy. They did not like the chapter that talks about the role of irony in absolutism. And I believe that there is a presence of irony in absolutism union wartime culture that's not found in confederate wartime culture i'm not saying that it's not there entirely but there is a key difference and the point that you said about the differences in outlook and perceptions can be seen in fraternization if you look at Mm -hmm. how and there's plenty of similarities i mean we know what they did at fraternization they traded stories they traded tobacco traded newspapers that's what fraternization was about but when these men reported and wrote about it it's striking there's a northern soldier at Fredericksburg and he looks after he has fraternized with some confederates and he's looked at what the Union Army did to the town of Fredericksburg and he's seen the vast destruction and he acknowledges we are all complicit for this war. Mm-hmm. And, and that is this irony in which it allows many, but not all, many Union soldiers to gain critical distance on the war itself. Whereas, <laughs> absolutism for many confederates made them the diehard confederates that Jason Phillips so brilliantly writes about in his book. So that's an interesting chapter. That's the most cultural history, I think, approach of all my chapters. And I suspect that that's the one that will probably um, stir a lot of debate.
1: Well, I I very much like it. I mean, you, you can't read Ambrose Bierce and not Associate irony with the Union Absolutely. cause, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. or for that matter, Abraham Lincoln compared to Jefferson Davis, as you mentioned, uh, in terms Absolutely. of yeah. uh, recognizing yeah. the second inaugural. We're yeah. all involved in this, compared to Davis, yeah, exactly. we're the good guys; you're the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have just and, a and, 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 I,
3: Lincoln's, and Lincoln's humor, right? And Lincoln's humor. And, well, Lincoln exactly. was willing.
1: Lincoln was willing to be the butt of the joke. He was willing to be. Well, he's willing to be. He's willing to be the punchline. Which which Davis could never do. Um, Absolutely. Let me see if I can circle this around brilliantly here with a reference to uh, Cy Clegg, the uh, the fictional character uh, of of the Civil War memoir by Wilbur Hinman, who. Uh, uh, uh again captures uh in the illustration that you have from from that book that you reprint here showing Sai as a uh, a young soldier he's he's innocent and burdened with too much stuff and four years later he has evolved he's become pragmatic he's lean he's a mean fighting machine but he's still kept his his idealism uh that sums all that up but the point i want to make about that is uh I was sitting at, at uh, a table last summer at the Institute having lunch, and the guy across from me had a name tag that said Hinman, and oh. I said, are you related? And it turned out, uh, right. as you may right. recall, yeah. uh, it is, yeah. he's right. the descendant of okay. – so right. there at right. Gettysburg at your Civil War Institute, I got to talk with great, great, how many grandson of Wilbur Hinman? I think this
3: two or three. That's
1: right. Yeah, he was pretty old. It wasn't too many geezers in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
3: But it's so another sign book. of how.
1: It's a great book, yeah. and it's a great institute. Uh, I just want to bring those together. Uh, well, as, I'm, as I'm glad
3: you did it. I know we're running out of time, but Side yeah. in his part is mm-hmm. one of the most underappreciated. Now, it's not a memoir; it's a fictional account. But Hyman was a, a was a veteran soldier. It is well right. worth your time. And I should just quickly note: I know we don't have much time. I met two weeks ago in North Carolina giving a talk at the Brunswick, Brunswick Civil War Roundtable. Oh, that's
1: 420 a big 420
3: people. 420 yes. people, Brunswick. I met one of John Futch's direct wow. descendants.
1: Yeah. That's, which is, that, that's uh, that part of the state, isn't it? That's awesome. It is that part. Of the story. Well, but you know, well, we, like, we we're Nigeria actually is, out of time. Yeah. I, I oh, hate sure. to cut you off. They're You're they're no, going to pull the plug on us, and we've got to go. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Listeners, if you can't tell from our discussion tonight, you you need to read this book. Peter S. Carmichael is the author, "The War for the Common Soldier: How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies." Uh, it, it's it, you just need to read it. And Pete, I look forward to seeing you at the institute again. And thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Jerry, thank you so much. Have a wonderful holiday. And listeners, you do the same. And thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. I'm